This is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to Season 3, Beyond the Studio East Coast Edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and a review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Before we get started on this week's episode, you may have noticed that this is part two, which means it is the second half of a two-part conversation. We divide up the episodes if they go a little longer than our usual time, but are too good to cut down. In part one of the conversation, we talked with Jean about her history as an artist. We talked about carving out space for yourself in a discipline where you don't see yourself represented. We talked about learning to advocate for yourself with galleries and institutions and allowing people to advocate for you on on your behalf. Uh, We talked about community building and really participating in the communities that exist around you. If this is your first time listening, definitely go back and listen to that episode because it at least will give you some context because we're starting in the middle here. Uh, Um, Even though all of us can't really afford to share too much, but we have a lot of unutilized resources that we don't think of as being necessarily valuable, but others do, you know, so we can offer it. There's much more that we can offer than we think. Oh, yes. I love that. It's so much in the spirit of mutual aid and, and art as activism and, the, and art as a method of, of continuing to bring community. And, and it's, I mean, these are all topics that I think now we're having more than ever, although I know they've been going on for a long time as well. Um, and hopefully now on like a much larger scale. I'm also curious about your approach. I guess this might be like a redundant and a repeat of my last question, basically, but I'm curious about your approach to communicating activism through your work, because it's not just about community. So much of it is also about sustainability and finding these objects that are discarded and saying they don't have to be discarded. They can become something and become a part of something. So I'm curious about uh, your approach with that as well. Uh, if that's not too much of a repetitive question. <laughs> no, uh, I think you're reframing the content, right? Um, and so when we zoom out into, like, what does this mean? What is the meaning of all of these gestures? It does question the value of life and then kind of go to, you know, sustainability and our environment. And that, you know, we're all part of this larger ecosystem and it doesn't stop from just humans. The environment has given us so many gifts um, for us to thrive and continue to do that and how we misuse that and abuse it and and is extractive and not giving back um, to restore and to replant. And so I think it is true that once you start to kind of do what I'm doing, it, it keeps unfolding into the other things that are wrong, you know, uh, in your mm-hmm. surroundings. So um, it's not just how we treat ourselves, um, but it's really how we treat nature um, and how we see it as um, an other. And it's not. Um, we are part of mm-hmm. nature and it reflects um, how we treat this incredible environment um, that we exist in. And it's life. 
So, yeah, thank you for asking that because, you know, I, I find that these little names, whether you're community or activist or, you know, they divide. Yeah. And I think that, you know, usually everyone's doing a lot of those kind of um, mutual concerns and care, you know, mm-hmm. and it runs across those uh, naming and labels. Um, so it's like how many, you know, are you an activist slash educator slash community right. slash artist slash, you know, it's like, okay, can we, mm-hmm. how many long titles? can you have <laughs> you know right. so I just kind of think you could just be an artist and yes you do all those things in different ways and different places require more or less you know yeah that's such a great way to think about um and really define the role of the artist as one that is sort of inclusive of all of these things and um I just I loved your story about you know inviting people in to your work and process and also um thinking you know even even from a place of, of scarcity or maybe having little resources or, or maybe just the perception that you have little to give, you know, how, how can you make those connections and sort of bring people into your process to create something that's sort of greater than the sum of their parts. And I was wondering too, um, because, because your work does involve so many, so many people, so many objects and materials, and it seems like scale is also been a part of your your work just creating these large um, sculptural installations I guess I don't know if challenges is the right word but considerations as as the scale of your work has grown whether that's in terms of materials or sort of who's involved in the process you talked about your approach to community and sort of how you're defining that but I'm just wondering, like, even logistically, as you're, you know, approaching a project, what are some of the things you're thinking about um, in in order to bring something to life? Mm-hmm. The scale thing is interesting. It is both incredibly challenging um, because the amount of time it takes to transform materials um, through labor and and then the space um, and the the logistics of shipping and so it is it comes with so much challenge. Um, I think I gravitated toward the scale um, these large scale works um, that are often incredibly monumental, partly because I come from wanting to engage the intimate relationship, whether it's an object or a person, you know, so that kind of scale issue of the body and then um, allowing this magnification, right, the multiplicity of that scale into the individual unit to the collective and really to the collective imaginative um, imagination. And I think you can't do like, I have one to 10, you know, like people can literalize that. <laughs> it's a dining room table, it's a classroom, it's a group, you know, and then you go one to a hundred and you're like, mm, I can probably visualize that, you know. So once you start to go into the thousands of a certain unit, you can't visualize, you know, and you can only imagine, you know? And so I think that that kind of sense of like, let's not be literal about it. We're really talking about the, the collective struggle, the collective difficulties, you know, and how we're all part of that, you know? I've always honored that sense of that we're part of something whole that's even greater than we could even understand. But in pursuit of that, I have to go through all the logistics that you named and, um, it is daunting as an artist to manage that. So yes, I'm, I'm constantly questioning like, Jean, are you really at this again? Like how, you know, and of course I don't know. And, you know, I can't answer that. But once the space happens and someone starts to offer a venue, then yeah, I'm trying to fit it in that space. And usually these public spaces 
come with a lot of real estate, you know, and I'm, I'm being challenged by the site. Uh, and so in a way, I've tried to reduce my footprint um, and still try to have the impact that I want. And I then start to question, like, in today's time, is there a different way to have that impact? And so, yeah, I, I would hope to find a better solution <laughs> where all my work just comes down to, like, I can store it here. <laughs> you know, but I have, you know, a, a barn full of uh, past art installations. And as one project comes back to me, I'm kind of like trying to send another project back out just to make more space. Um, and I really feel like this kind of circulation of the works um, are interesting kind of way of like allowing it to have second, third, fourth, fifth generation of the work exist as opposed to, again, it going to the landfill or just for a one-time purpose only kind of agenda. And I hope to strive not to do that, you know, just from all the principles around a sustainability. And, and I'm of course appalled at how many exhibition sites just it's all about having it happen open and then they don't care what happens afterwards and my whole premise is about we care about what happens afterwards but I'm the only one caring unfortunately I have very little support (laughs) and the other end everyone wants to open the venue but no one wants to take care of you after (laughs) so that's the kind of institutional shift I I hope that people can um, make because um, people are super excited to engage in a new adventure and a new exhibition uh, and create new commissions. But it's like, we got plenty of commissions here <laughs> that um, still would be appreciated and have a life and, again, something to offer. But the stewardship around that work and the collections of work, that's becomes a hurdle for me as I can let you know, have so many of my own installations that I have to store and take care of and hope that another institution would take them and preserve them for future generations. Yeah, that's so interesting to think about the preservation of your work. It uh, sounds like that really falls on you as the artist and, you know, having to think about storage. And because so much of your work is, is site-specific, do you envision that these works are are just are kind of repurposed in a new way, or do you um, do you try and preserve the installation sort of as is, with the intent that they could be shown in multiple spaces? Yeah, I would say my work um, comes out of the site specific, right? But then once you, it, it's where the conversation begins, but it's not where the conversation mm-hmm. ends, and it's not the content of the conversation because the content of the conversation could happen in many situations, right? We have, you know, we're not so isolated anymore. So, like, let's say the exhibition I currently had at the Asian Art Museum, it was in the Bay Area, and I created this exhibition called Pause, and um, it dealt with the history of technology coming out of Silicon Valley. You know, I really wanted to make a nod to those people who were the optimistic inventors of this thing that we're engaging with every day and the accountability and the responsibility of that as, as we interact with it and how we've sort of lost the optimism, right? But, you know, that conversation isn't just a Silicon Valley conversation because what they did has had global impact on all of our lives every day. And so the similarly, what 
what they're doing are extracting resources from all over the world, you know, vice versa. How we're upgrading our technology then gets um, left behind and um, not recycled really ends up being toxic to our environment and our lives. So, you know, we're no longer isolated. So yes, you can be very localized and think locally, but really the impact um, is that that situation also exists elsewhere and has had impact elsewhere. So I do think of my mm. um, exhibitions maybe starting somewhere, but it can move to another site and they will probably have a really strong relationship and the second conversation to where the first site began. Um, and I'm really hoping that works travel and build on those conversations over time it shifts because different people are participating in that conversation and that the work might also mutate and, and get adopted. Um, so similarly, I showed this project Floating Maze in New York, but it originated in Iowa. And at first I thought, well, what does a project that I cited in Iowa have to do with New York? And I realized, oh my God, it has everything to do with New York because processed foods, um, the mm. sugar content comes from the corn that's overproduced in Iowa and it lives in our shells while we are struggling to, you know, you know, have healthy foods that are affordable, uh, especially during the pandemic and all we have is sort of processed foods. Um, in our shelves, you know, so so there's a lot of connections, but from different perspectives of multiple locations and their dialogues um, shift. And I like that shifting of conversations over time. Yeah, that also brings up another question for me about um, materiality, where it sounds like you you imagine all of these works having a lifespan beyond the exhibition. Of course, so much of your work conceptually has to do with repurposing objects and materials. But I'm wondering with the more permanent nature of some some projects like public art projects, for example, where you're working with maybe ceramic or glass or repurposed rebar versus something that might be a little bit more fragile or discarded material. Has this ever dictated material choice or sort of how are you thinking, how are you making those decisions, you know, based on the, the longevity or, you know, permanence of the work? Oh, yeah. So the, the permanent um, commissions are really thought differently because the site is offered. And again, I say the, the stewardship, the care for the work is often included in mm. um, the work. So, so I just love that they're offering time and space, <laughs> you know, um, for the work and not a very short temporal um, engagement. And so their investment is really different. And so they're hoping that I can make a material choice and a, and a process and, um, and fabrication that would honor that. And it's usually about 60 years, you know, and so I do have to consider who I'm working to fabricate the works and how much I'm challenging them by like my ideas and how I would like it to be um, kind of produced. So it is nice to imagine that in these sites, I'm working with people who know their materials so well and it's their expertise, um, whether they're working in glass or mosaic or ceramics, you know, um, their technical know-how on, on this is so um, strong um, that I have no uh, doubt that it will last many lifetimes from now. Um, what's so interesting is then just pushing my aesthetics and my ideas and having them 
push against what they know could be possible with the traditional materials and techniques, you know? And I love that dialogue, but it has to be a right fit. So there's a lot of working challenges with trying to land somewhere, you know, um, after many samples, this is what you have. And am I going to live with it? Or can we try one more time (laughs) to do it this other way, you know? So um, what's so nice is uh, so many of my trusted fabricators are the ones who really truly love working in that method. They love the challenge as opposed to trying to get the easy and short um, end of it. It's not how I work. So when someone says, oh, that's easy, I go, goodbye. (laughs) You clearly don't know my work. And someone who then poses a lot of questions back at me and have you considered this? What are the concerns? What are this? They really do want to deeply understand what I'm conceiving of and realize it's a big ask. And and their willingness to say, well, I can give it a try. These are my concerns. I'm like, yes, you're the person who's, who, who understands it. They understand the problem that, you know, this is going to be a challenge, but they're up for it. And um, some part of them, it's what drives them is to do something that they've never done before. And I feel the same way. So if we find the same kind of uh, relationship to the hard work, that's when we know I've got a good fabricator on board. Yeah, I wanted to ask a little bit about the um, kind of collaborations or working relationships within um, something like a museum exhibition versus a public art project and how those might differ. But first, I was wondering, for some of these projects like the MTA in New York um, or other public art projects, are these things that you were actively pursuing alongside other work or opportunities that just started to emerge at a certain stage of career? Or, you know, were these things that you were also actively applying to? I think the permanent stuff happened because they took notice, these curators who uh, are Mm -hmm. arts administrators at the um, uh, permanent uh, agencies. They took notice and said, oh, she works at this scale and wouldn't it be amazing to imagine having one of these, you know, at the school system or the public subways or the train station. So so they were through invitations. um, And now I, of course, start to apply to things if I feel like it's interesting or other people ask me to apply. But that doesn't mean I always get it. You know, I'm you know often seen as like a good finalist. And I'm, unfortunately, that becomes, well, I'm competing as every other person who's white and male, um, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm yeah. kind of like, oh, I guess you needed someone who's not white and male, you know, <laughs> honestly. And yeah. then I just go, but, mm-hmm. but will you choose me? Or, you know, and they're like, oh, we love your work. And it's like, yes, but you won't necessarily choose me because, you know. So so I think it's really hard, these institutions and their sense of, um, you know, what they imagine a public artist, you know, looks like and can mm. do. Um, so I think there's a lot of challenges in that. You know, it's a, it's a very, it's, there are institutions that, you know, are pretty conservative <laughs> as far as the materials and everything else. But I've been lucky, you know, there are other ones who are just like, Yes, and they'll support and navigate uh, the process so it's fair and that they're really choosing the work, you know. Um, and I've had, you know, people unanimously um, honor, like, the good proposal. You know, you beat, you beat out all the guys, you know. <laughs> um, and I love that, you know. I was like, thanks. Like, I worked really hard, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I just feel like um, I don't do too many of them, but the ones that have been extremely meaningful, like the Second Avenue subway station, 
you know, this is after um, I uh, failed to do one um, because they didn't select me. And um, then they called me back and said, would you still be interested? And I said, I'm still so heartbroken about the last one. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm over it. Do I want to engage in another competition, make another proposal um, and go through this? Um, and then I realized, yes, I do. I really do want to make work for the public space and for um, the general public, someone who's not going to a museum or a gallery to see art and for them to be commuting and seeing beautiful work and why don't they deserve a jean shin? Why do they deserve X, Y, and Z? You know, so I felt like I want to honor that. I, I want to give back to the city. I want that opportunity. So yes, I had to go back and uh, let go of my rejection and my ego and say, yes, I'm game. I'm all for it. But of course, secretly, it was like, please don't reject me again after I compete <laughs> and put myself out yeah. there and put all the work toward a proposal. Um, because then it feels, um, I always equate like, you know, um, the birthing process, it feels like it's conceived. I can imagine it. I've named it. I've seen every, um, you know, I've seen the toes and its cute little smile. And, my, you know, and then when someone says, no, it's not happening, you're like, oh, <laughs> you know, you don't know what to do because you have literally conceived of this new, um, you know, being in, in your mind. And then you just have to kind of like let go and wait for someone else to ask. Uh, and then you're like, hey, you want to adopt a proposal? <laughs> someone who <laughs> wasn't responsible for conceiving this one with me and just walked away and, and I have one ready to go. So sometimes these proposals that have been rejected by one institution um, and they say, we love it. You know, we love it, but we just couldn't do it. And we had to go and make this difficult decision, okay. blah, blah, blah. Um, interestingly, when another ask comes along, I go, you know what? I can reconceive of this for you, you know, and I can kind of rethink this. Um, and then they love it, you know, and I can then see why it was better that it was this new site than the other one, because I could see the problems, you know. So it's, it, it is really humbling when you get through this process. Um, I think having some of those critical voices and getting those rejections um, are a tough learning curve. Um, but when after the fact, you kind of see, oh, I can see why they didn't like this proposal. I can see the flaws in it. And I can see how this is too challenging for them. And why this other site is more conducive and more open to this engagement. So we learn. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting because even though your work is, is so much about that process of re reinterpreting or reimagining objects and sort of giving them a new life, it's, it's still, I imagine, doesn't get any easier when it, when it comes to the life of your own work and having to sort of let go of a vision for a certain project in order to reimagine it in a different, in a different context or in a, you know, totally different time. And just that you have to continue. And that said, I would say, um, with the public art, even though the proposal phase is really, really difficult, I do think it's better for institutions, museums, or even public art agencies to really admit, like, we, we can't move on. You know, and, and I think that clarity and honesty 
about what's really happening is so important. Those who don't, it ends up hurting the project at the end. I mean, I really do say you have to love the project. Otherwise, it's just not worth going through the trouble, <laughs> you know? And the pr projects I admit are challenging, um, but those who go through it um, is because, you know, they do care about it and they really are determined with me. Um, and it shows in how long and how much they champion for the realization of these works. Um, so I think it's powerful. It takes a lot of collective work to realize it. It's not just my own. Um, so if they're sort of lukewarm, I kind of go, are you really committed? Maybe you should bail out now and just, we just stop, mm. <laughs> you know, because it will save us both the heartache and the rejection when I'm like, I need you now. This is when we both push, <laughs> you know, and, and they say, sorry, well, what are we doing? I'm, I'm busy right now. And you're like, what? <laughs> you know, so do you really want <laughs> to <be> right <laughs> Exactly. It can't wait. <laughs> this is where the urgency of the matter needs to be addressed. And I need you. Um, so I do kind of think it's this idea that they get it, you know, and they're there 100% for you. And, and I felt that support for some of these projects and the collaborators I've worked with. Um, so yeah, it's a heart, thankless job. Again, they're not even named, right? Uh, like the curators or the arts administrators, but the good ones are, um, yeah, well, you know, they similarly uh, go to bat for you. Do you have any practical advice from learning experiences through doing site-specific installations that you're like, I wish I had known this at the beginning or things that you've kind of learned through doing multiple projects where like, oh, okay, this is the timeline I need for myself. These are the, the things that I need to prepare myself. This is the amount of like additional budget for overflow that I need to prepare for or things being delayed. Like what are some, some things that you've learned through doing that has helped make the doing easier? It sounds like you already know <laughs> that all of those things have happened. You never have enough time. You never have enough money. You never have enough hands, you know, to do the labor, um, to tr transform the kind of level of detail I want um, and craft and methodology around the making. Um, so, yes, all of, all of those things are not uh, enough. Um, but it's enough to realize it. And um, to me, that... that I do when the project is at that point, I push as hard as I can to realize it. And, and, you know, it's a euphoric kind of energy, but it's not sustained. <laughs> so obviously then I'm collapsed and can't do anything for a really long time and have to recover. Um, so it is tough to be in those positions and I would rather it be better funded with a contingent budget, you know, good 10%, good 20% would be wonderful. Um, other deeper pockets when we're kind of feeling pinch they're like oh we'll take care of it love that mm -hmm. <laughs> you know yes. um, so yes that would be great you know but oftentimes um when you sign a contract that's it you know but I have to say like when the need is there um these organizations do come and say you know I can see well let me let me look into that and they come back with additional funds that they would have earmarked for different things and realize that there is a need in the project and they want to help support the project the way you want it to end. And the same thing, I, I feel like my assistants and uh, people who I work with um, are also in incredibly generous and accommodating. You know, when we're up till 2 a.m. and we're still not done and the art's being picked up the next morning, you know, it's tough. <laughs> um, and when you have people who literally are like, 
um, how are you? Are you okay? I'm like, how am I? Um, I just feel <laughs> bad that you're here with me tonight, you know? Um, and yeah. yes, the, pro- the work will get done because I'll do it until it's done. Um, but to realize that they're making that same sacrifice to see you happy and to care about you. I mean, so it goes a really long way and I wish um, that wasn't the process, but like I said, it's not an um, easy um, task that I've assigned myself. And, you know, I guess I I must love doing it. Um, But yeah, so the roads are, um, yes, always have a contingency budget, always um, put in probably two months more than you imagine and two extra hands than you imagine. (laughs) Um, So, you know, just everything is just give yourself that little buffer, you know, and there's always the unforeseeable. But I do think like um, talking through the process up front with the people who are planning those work with you is great. You know, don't undersell the work and don't promise things. You know, just say, well, I'll know at this time and then we can discuss. To do things in phases always helps. You know, um, so when I do proposals, you know, I, I sort of say like we can come, we can make those decisions or realize those budgets at that point when we kind of get through that first phase and then let's talk about the next phase, you know. Um, so if you can pace it out that way, that's the best. I mean, some of the best curators I've worked with have allowed for that, what we call the R&D time, you know, to fund and to give us time for those conversations to happen, you know, as opposed to collapsing everything from proposal to realization to exhibition planning and it's like whoa you know you know they they function very very differently and so a lot of that planning can happen to slow the process down in a way that we assure that all those needs are being met it's always better yeah it seems like there's something in here too um just about self-advocacy and sort of understanding your your own process and the ability to communicate that with others. And I could see how that kind of project management ability, even from like back in, you know, those publishing days can really come into play with these larger scale collaborative projects where there are so many moving pieces and, and much larger budgets and a lot of people and a lot of different factors involved. Yeah, there's, I feel like I have different modes of working and that's kind of different because most people, they're like, their personality is like, I'm even very even toed and that's how I move in the world, period. And there's other people who are just like speed, speed, speed. And I feel like I can operate in many modes and I like the slow time of, you know, idea and research and conversation and, and building, you know, building support systems around an idea first and to make sure that there's safety nets involved. And that's a slow process, you know? And then it, when it goes into production, it's like all hands on board, you know, just work, 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 you know, very steady flow and trying to get the, the rhythm of it that feels so part of, you don't think about it, you just do because it's all been planned out. And then when the deadline is so close and you still have so much production, it is crisis mode and it's like, you know, what are the shortcuts? What can we do now? How can we do it more efficiently? That worked then, but we can't do it now. What are new systems that we can come into place? You know, and so I think that mode is also um, really um, dealing with like the outcome, you know, and then back when you get to install, then it becomes really spontaneous, like responsive and follow your gut, you know, even though you might have a plan. Um, so I think you can kind of channel those different ways of working. Um, and I have to say, partly because of my experience having done um, and played different 
different kinds of um, spaces of work. I've had curators um, in, you know, you were asking me about like some lessons learned. Um, I remember involving and being on site with a curator and uh, we had hired like 15 uh, assistants and all of their staff were on scaffolds installing my work. And they were just amazing, hardworking individuals who'd spent, you know, maybe two days, three days. And the curator walks by and she's like, are you happy? Is this going well? And I hesitated just for a second. And she goes, what's going on? And I said, well, now that we've had a couple of days, I see that I wish it was higher, but it's like too late. So don't worry about it, you know? And I was really going to just be like, you know, this is, look at the generosity, just go with the flow. But she was like, whoa, stop. (laughs) And she was just like total hard ass. And I loved that. And she was just like, you guys stop, stop. Just stop everything. It's like, Jean, make a decision. This is your decision. We're here to serve you and we want to get it right. We're not going to be happy. You know, so whatever it is, just, just, we're going to leave the room. You make a decision, just come talk to me and just, we'll do it right. And that's the kind of advocacy, a, a, a strong curator who's like, I hear you and I want you to hear yourself and we're here for you. And, you know, and then I, I echo that when I'm in my own process. I'm like, oh, that's okay. You kind of go, no, it's not. It's not okay. You need it the way you want it done. There's no reason for it, but that's how you want it done. And maybe it's worth redoing all that work and doing it, right? And so I think those are tough decisions, but um, it's totally worth it. And I think that's what you're talking about as far as advocacy goes. You know, some things are worth it. And you can't, you know, you can't rationalize or you can't, you know, I, I was just feeling bad. Like these people spent three days. I can't ask that of them. And, and she said, you're not having to ask them. They're willing to do and we're going to make that happen. That's what they signed up for. And I was like, <laughs> just so amazed that someone could articulate that so clearly, you know. Um, so, yeah, sometimes, you know, we can be so humbling uh, with the process that I feel like I've overburdened um, and not realize that there is an end game and there's a reward and people are, want to be uh, satisfied in hitting that mark for us. And it's wonderful. It's really beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's so easy to, I don't know, make our our needs or desires for for a project seem smaller because it's like oh this is a huge ask of other people and I don't want to like burden them with that but having someone that's like no you you get what you want because this is your work and you got to show it the way that you need to because that's the whole point of you showing your work in the first place it's it's communicating your message and and showing what you're thinking and feeling and having someone that's helping you do that in the way that you really need to and the way you intend to is super helpful. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely still trying to figure out how to advocate for myself. And I'm sure that'll probably be a lifelong journey for many of us. So if someone can like, give you that, that confidence to say, like, ask for what you want, you deserve it. It's really helpful. Yeah, don't settle, right. And, uh, mm-hmm. and it, it is like art is one of those things that lives in those little tiny relationships. And when you get those little details, right, then it's like magical. It's like effortless, right? But when it is burdened by like the rationale of like, that's all we got, (laughs) that's what it is. Then we're like, yeah, that's what it is. And it's not really satisfying, you know? And I think that like the magic holds in kind of that like impossible, how did did that happen? 
you know? And I think had it happened is like someone trusted you to like listen to you and that feels like magic, right? Someone heard you, you know, even before you spoke, they heard you. Yeah, that's such a beautiful description of the sort of like something that maybe is coming through in the final work that might be hard to hard to capture or articulate, but that essence that it has, it's really rooted in something that maybe, you know, some people might think is is unreasonable or unrealistic, but I was even thinking about, you know, the this kind of criteria that you have for working with fabricators on a on a public art piece is like that that willingness to kind of try something that you know is going to be you know, a little unconventional or is is going to be, you know, challenging from the get go, but sort of, you know, having a team in place that's willing to help realize that, you know, being being so important, but also just kind of being willing to push for that yourself and kind of stay stick with that vision for the work throughout the process, even when, you know, things are challenging or it means you have to kind of backtrack on work that's already been done. But I love that description. And, you know, the output is so clear. I mean, you get to sort of see the final final vision of your work and how satisfying and amazing that must be but knowing what went into it there's there's so much more um labor than is even apparent in the final work yes yeah um there's so many more projects that we could talk about and so much more to to dive into but i just wanted to ask if there is anything important that you would want to share that we haven't touched on yet um or maybe haven't asked about Oh gosh, I, I've been so engrossed in our conversation. <laughs> it's hard to like pull out and imagine what did we not cover. Um, uh, yeah, no, I don't <laughs> really know. Um, I think you know when we talk about the difficulties, I would advocate also um, a lot for self care, and uh, there is incredible burnout when you know you give too much to a project to see that vision across and you've asked too much of of people who are willing and so excited to realize with you um but it is exhausting so yes i can definitely find myself on the other end of it being like oh wow a normal day (laughs) nothing has to happen today and so i think just kind of finding the either space or your relationships that um, offer that quietness and that unconditional, like, we're just together. There's no demand. There's no, you know, I think that peace is really important. And so, you know, part of my leaving Brooklyn and being in the quarantine, you know, near Kingston and Hudson Valley has also been a, a sort of strange way of recharging um, at a time that's incredibly uh, intense for all of us. But I've also done incredible projects during that time. And so it's um, allowed me to just be in a calming environment um, with nature, you know, uh, with a little more space, um, with just the sunlight. And um, those little moments are really important. So yeah, just checking in. Um, and I would advocate for that, you know, that's the part of ourselves that we don't um, give. And it could be the little simple little pleasures, you know, and just indulging and reminding ourselves, I deserve that. <laughs> Just this one day, um, because, you know, you're going to show up and do the hard work the next day. But I just think and also just to celebrate um, those achievements, um, because if you don't, who who else will, you know, and similarly um, to celebrate that joy with your friends when they achieve those things, you know, and to be there for those celebrations. Don't say I'm busy <laughs> because 
you know, life is too short um, not to have been there and to just uh, revel in the joy of uh, those achievements that we um, have for ourselves and the critical um, space, um, um, which is really friendship, you know. Oh, thank you. That was what I needed to hear tonight (laughs) as I'm like overworking myself during the holiday season and I'm like burnout. I can feel it. I mean, before we even hopped on this call, I was like, Nicole, I might have a panic attack at some point today. It's been it's been on the verge for many hours. So I'm grateful to have been able to take the time to have this conversation with you in this like stressful moment, because I know I feel like very seen and heard through this and like, I'm like, yeah, I know you're right. I do need to do some self care, I guess. I don't know, maybe I'll paint my nails or something. That sounds nice. <laughs> Or, you know, whatever. Yes, um, you deserve it. Whatever it is that you think <laughs> of. <laughs> and, you yeah. know, I was I was thinking like, oh my God, they're doing back-to-back um, interviews. And yes, it's what they want to do. It's on the schedule. It just happened to be <laughs> the schedule worked like that, you know? I know, it's so kind of you. You're like, I hope you're not too tired after the second interview. And I'm thinking like, I can't believe you're taking the time. Thank you. <laughs> no, because I, I kind of feel like these are things that um, you can space out and enjoy, right? And then, then they have this own, like little moment in, in your, your schedule, you know, but then when they collapse, they then create a new relationship that's not healthy, you know? And so it's like, yeah, it's sort of nice to take a break from one interview and go on to another. And I see that you guys were doing just like, okay, we just got to do it. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I know, I know that determination. <laughs> it's on the schedule. We just do it. <laughs> but then it's like, okay, you need uh, to take times two uh, rewards for doing two interviews back to back, you know, so. I will have two chocolates. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's very kind. Um, I just appreciate the insistence on on those moments of rest and pause after those, you know, intensive periods of work, um, because I think that's that ebb and flow we've all experienced. But just in hearing you talk too about the different modes of working on projects and the sort of, you know, headspace or, or mental energy that's required of them. And that, you know, what whatever state we're in is um, maybe not possible to sustain for, for a long term, but that we have these seasons to our work and life. And so I thought that was a, a, a nice way to sort of follow it up because um, certainly, you know, working towards a project or a deadline, there's, there's hurdles and, you know, challenges to overcome, but then kind of taking a step back and really kind of appreciating and, you know, celebrating that achievement and then giving yourself that time to, to re-energize um, is so important. So I just, I loved that full, full cycle you described. Well, I, I feel like um, we're learning from nature why we have four seasons, right? Mm. Like yes. in the winter, it's not that nature is dead. It, it is yeah. really st- a restorative process. You know, you can't just produce and produce and produce forever. You know, it's it's capitalism. It's, um, you know, what is it for? So I did. I do think this kind of inward maintenance work. <laughs> um, there's other things going on that's really important. And like I said, like it's the deep work um, to be able to think and to and, and not quote produce, but actually um, critically rethink everything you've done, perhaps. Um, and um, so I think in some way the. The pandemic is that time where, yes, we can't be out there doing all the normal things. And so even though it it is for a tragic reason, um, if you do think of like, well, this is the great pause of 2020. Um, And so what have we reevaluated? What do we what what do we need? 
you know, and obviously we need, we need to fix a lot of things. Um, yes. <laughs> the pandemic definitely has accelerated all the things that are wrong um, mm-hmm. and wrong with our lives, wrong with our professional lives, wrong with um, our institutions, wrong, you know, so I think in some way it's like it is time that we're not just thinking of a cure, but we're thinking of how do we repair, how do we maintain, how do we, you know, care for, you know, the things that we love. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, it's how do we mourn what we've actually lost and grieve that part of um, our ourselves, you know. Um, so I think um, it's it can be an incredibly different productive space. So, yeah. You know, when you're doing your nails and eating chocolate, it's deep work. You know, you're seeding yeah. something, you're you're <laughs> um, scheming up the next big thing, but also just breathing in the air and taking a deep breath. So important. Totally, and I really appreciated you mentioning the reference to nature. I I talk a lot about how I feel like we we have to take from nature and and follow this seasonal approach to our own lives because if plants and animals have to hibernate or go go dormant why would we not also have those needs for rest and I mean I I say this as I'm overworking myself but I always plan for a season of rest after tough seasons because I know I need to give myself that to have the fuel to do anything moving forward yeah this has been such an excellent conversation i feel like i could talk to you for hours about any of these (laughs) topics um and i'm so grateful we got to talk about sustainability on the podcast and i'm just so grateful that you came on thank you so much thank you it's been a pleasure getting to know you guys and i appreciate all your questions and your interest and i hope that we can all recharge and see each other at some point um so if you're ever nearby contact me and we'll have a conversation redo in person (laughs) oh thank you oh thank you so much That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. 